Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Jim, happy summer. Happy summer, Maeve. Well, you know um, that I hate it, but I oh, know that you right, like you it. you do. <laughs> yes, you once wrote a scathing takedown of summer in the the times. Mm. But this was before the pandemic. Has that shifted your argument at all? Like, because now it's better when you're outside, you mean? So well, I yeah, should be happy. I mean, mm-hmm. Things seem to be better in places where the warm weather is upon us and you can be outside yeah. and have more airflow. And You've always been trying to point out the good things about summer to me. And now I'm in Ireland for the summer and the days are so long and bright, like the midday of summer, June 20th, the longest day. It's going to be bright until midnight here. Oh, my gosh. How is that mm-hmm. so fast upon us? <laughs> I know it's wild, isn't it? But my, yeah. I mean, my, what I do, which as a doctor, I think you'll agree, stay inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that is the surest way to avoid sunburn. You heard it here first. And other tips. Uh, <laughs> I, This is Social Distance, The Atlantic's podcast about Mm -hmm. the pandemic. I'm James Hamblin, a doctor and staff writer with The Atlantic. And I'm Maeve Higgins, a very pale comedian and writer. (laughs) Maeve, speaking of tips, I believe you mentioned last week you were going to have three tips for success. (gasps) I forgot. I forgot, Jim. (laughs) Okay, well, okay, we can put that on ice, but I did not forget and I am going to be continuing to look for your tips um yeah one of them uh, is uh sunscreen and stay inside that's right two of them is don't inform to the fbi (laughs) there's a character jimmy altieri named after you jimmy hamblin (laughs) and he gets shot in a bad way i have to say Uh oh Mm -hmm. because he was an fbi informant so you're you should not be a snitch no and Probably if your name is Jim or James, you should do what you do, which is don't shorten it to Jimmy or lengthen it to Jimmy. Yeah. You know, I had to be Jimmy when I was a kid because there were so many Mm. Jims in my family, but people don't seem to call me that anymore. Was there a day that you just like got serious? (laughs) 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 He just um, balanced our checkbook. (laughs) (laughs) He just killed a woman. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, that's the kind of thing that happens in The Sopranos. Yeah, I understand. I have mm-hmm. not seen The Sopranos, but but it's on my list. Yeah, that's my second tip, actually. Watch The Sopranos. Yeah. Huh. It's really enthralling, and it will make you forget about um, all your other commitments. So, Jim, uh, do you think that the amount of jibba-jabba that we're doing here is a good sign? Do you know what I mean? Because this is a Uh-oh. podcast about the pandemic. Well, I just enjoyed chatting with you. But yeah, I suppose the fact that we're on episode like 370 or something. (laughs) And I think Mm -hmm. most of them have started with me in a very worried or frantic state, a bunch of sighs and groans. And now it seems like we're talking about random weird stuff again. Yeah, I've gotten that lightening up feeling with my US friends, certainly in the past few weeks. And it's just lovely. It's just the best. What are people doing? 
you know, a lot of people are fussing around, you know, oh, I don't feel like going to a barbecue, but I don't have an excuse. I don't. You know, just like nice, nice problems. And, you know, who's been invited where? And I know that it's not like that everywhere. I mean, here in Ireland, um, they just opened up like the vaccinations for 45 year olds. So they're doing it year, year by year. So that's pretty good. I yeah. think, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like so you'll have a shot at it before too long. And then you'll be back, you'll be in the space of moving on to worrying about the new things that yeah trivial. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll be like the one glowering at Instagram. Why, when did they decide to meet up? <laughs> Definitely. Maeve, I have a theory that we all kind of worry the same amount over the course of most years or months, regardless mm -hmm. of how bad things actually are mm -hmm. for us. I mean, you have very bad days and tragedies and, and whatnot where things are yeah. like objectively the worst, but when you take an average, like we move on from one thing like a pandemic and we replace it, we will find new things that are genuinely worthy of our concern, but that our overall level of worry won't be dramatically different coming years. Is that wrong? No, I mean, that's, I'll take your word for it, certainly. But so now that we're moving on to new concerns, you know, people's concerns, what I'm hearing from listeners and readers and people I know is just how do we think about risk after vaccination? We talked a little bit about what we know about how long vaccines last, mm -hmm. but, you know, what are we seeing so far in terms of people who've, who've tested positive after having a vaccine? What does that look like? What are we learning about how protection is playing out? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because that seems like the focus of, even though I know that, you know, you haven't gotten to be vaccinated, most of the world hasn't, in the U.S. at least, the concerns are moving on to post-vaccination risks. Yeah, the breakthrough cases. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. So uh, our colleague Katie Wu has written a few stories actually about breakthrough cases most recently one last week, and I was hoping we could call her up and she could fill us in on the latest. Hi, Katie. Hello. Hey, Katie. Nice Welcome to see you. Welcome back to the show. Mm -hmm. It's good to be back. You know, thanks for coming back because we, we read your piece and then um, it really seems like the pandemic is winding down in America, but, um, you know, people are getting vaccinated, people are ready to party. But if people are still getting COVID after the vaccine, even if it's not that often, how worried should we be? I think there's two ways to answer that question. Collectively, okay. we should not be super worried. I think on a population level, these so-called breakthrough infections where people are getting infected with the virus and very occasionally getting sick despite being fully vaccinated, it's so, so, so rare. And even the people who are picking up the virus don't seem to be getting as sick. They don't seem to be hearing as much of the virus. You know, in short, the vaccines are doing their job. That said, I don't want to downplay uh, how concerning this can be for that individual person who does get infected or sick or the worries of the people around them. It's really tough to talk about these breakthrough mm -hmm. infections because we do want to track them uh, and pay attention to them on an individual level. But broadly, I do not see anything that is unexpected, to be totally honest. Can you catch us up just on the basic numbers? How many cases have been reported in the U.S. and how are we defining cases? There's kind of two numbers that I can 
tell you at this point. One is going to be a number that is only current through the end of April. And that's back when the CDC was tracking all breakthrough infections that were reported to them, regardless of severity. So if you test mm-hmm. positive for this virus and uh, your health department reports it to CDC, they're going to count it, even if you're asymptomatic. That was in kind of like the 10,000 range. But I, I really hesitate to do math here because it's super tempting to be like, oh, there were about 10,000 of these cases. And by that point, like, I don't know, 100 million people were vaccinated. So let's just divide. That's super tricky because we know that not all 100 million of those vaccinated Americans were Um, exposed to the virus. So they didn't all have the opportunity to get infected. We can't just say like, oh, this is exactly how effective the vaccines are. And the way that the CDC is sort of tracking that number, if you look on their data tracker, they actually add people to that fully vaccinated column the day they get their second shot. And we know that full vaccination in terms of like how immune protected you are doesn't really kick in until a couple weeks later. So it's really Mm -hmm. hard to do that kind of math. But that is still pretty good odds in terms of the big picture, 10,000 people by the end of April. We also do know that's an undercount because given that there are probably going to be a lot, maybe not a lot, (laughs) a decent more number of asymptomatic infections after people are vaccinated. And again, that is the vaccine doing its job. It's keeping you from getting sick. At the start of May, we started to transition into this different set of numbers because the CDC stopped tracking breakthrough cases that were not associated with hospitalization or death. So now they're only tabulating on their website cases where people ended up in the hospital or ended up dying and were also positive for the coronavirus. That doesn't always mean the coronavirus caused their sickness or death, mm. but that they were, you know, they tested positive and they also happened to be in the hospital. Uh, so it's it's tough. And when the CDC made the switch, it was kind of controversial because people were like, well, how are we going to get the full range of data here? How are we going to know if there's like a variant that is more consistently making people sick if we don't have anything to compare that to? But as you can imagine, the numbers have really dropped (laughs) since the CDC did this. And so now, you know, it's current through May 24th, 2021. There have been 2,454 hospitalized or fatal vaccine breakthrough cases reported to CDC where the person was also positive for the coronavirus. I mean, do you have a sense that there are many people in there who had, you know, say a heart attack or a car accident and and died because of that and are included in that number? Do you think do you have, is there any way to know how much of that is actually attributable to a serious case of COVID-19? So to the CDC's credit, they do actually put some little asterisks on this like little spreadsheet here. 540 of those 2,000 plus cases were actually reported as asymptomatic. So we know that not everything in that bucket that we just described is like someone dying of COVID-19, which I think is an important distinction to make because I have seen some people talking about this on Twitter or in different news outlets and saying like, oh, this is the percentage of breakthrough cases where, you know, COVID is killing people. And that's not quite accurate. I mean, it may have had something to do with it. I can't know the internal workings of every person's body (laughs) uh, that is in this list. But I think it's safe to say that, you know, sometimes infections just happen at a really unfortunate time. So it's really hard to draw firm conclusions based on just this number alone. Yeah. Do you know why they made that switch toward tracking in this new way? So not tracking just every single person who's tested positive, but only 
the hospitalization or uh, death cases? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a question that I think stirred a lot of debate in the past few weeks as this became more public knowledge. Basically, the CDC justified this by saying, you know, we are keeping track of the cases, you know, quote unquote, of most public health and clinical concern. Though that also felt a little weird to me, because again, COVID is not necessarily the, the direct cause of hospitalization or death in these cases. I suspect there's also kind of a, a pragmatism at work here, just because mm-hmm. like it's really hard to cast a net wide enough to say confidently, we are really getting a good sense of all the symptomatic cases or, you know, God forbid, we're trying to get a sense of every single infection, asymptomatic or not, that's out there. Uh, you know, hospitals and uh, other places through which people pass when they're really sick, they're going to keep pretty good medical records. It's probably going to be easier to figure out if a person has been fully vaccinated or not. So to tell a they qualify for a breakthrough case. It's just easier to to track. Yeah, the the line in your piece that really struck me was the goal of vaccination isn't eradication, but a detente in which humans and viruses coexist with the risk of disease at a tolerable low. That helped me to think about it in a more practical way, I guess. Yeah. And I think also thinking long term here, I could see this kind of being a more sustainable way to track breakthrough infections just because like labs across the country have just been slammed with like, please sequence everything, please test everything for Mm -hmm. so long now. It's really Mm -hmm. tough. And and that wouldn't necessarily be the most sustainable way to go forward. But I also do worry that this was, this is soon. This happened even before everyone in in our country, much less the world, was eligible for a vaccine and had access to a vaccine. So what are we missing by putting our blinders on, I think is a huge question here. Right, right. Are we picking up on any trends as to who is prone to breakthrough cases that are significant? Any relationship to how long ago people were vaccinated or to uh, age or chronic conditions? Or uh, is it too soon to see any patterns? Yeah, I think the short answer is that it's too soon to see any huge patterns, though a couple slight and maybe unsurprising ones have been picked up. The first is that the majority of the breakthrough cases that are documented as being related to hospitalization or death, they are occurring in people who are over the age of 65. And we did kind of expect that vaccines might not be quite as efficacious in people who are older just because their immune systems are a little sleepier. But apart from that, it's not huge. I I think the other thing that people are really on the lookout for is, are we seeing that a particular version of the virus that has specific mutations, is it consistently eluding the vaccines? And mostly the answer seems to be no, but it's really, really hard to tell because less than 10% of these reported breakthroughs have actually been whole genome sequenced, which means, you know, we can read the entire virus's genome from start to finish. I think that's, that's something that a lot of people are concerned about with relation to like, what breakthroughs are we tracking and how many should we be tracking at once? Is it related to, you know, I'm still in Ireland and they just released information about the first person who's definitely got the virus twice in the space of eight months. So is it like that? Is it the same thing where like your body was able to cope with it and then you get a lesser version of it? Because she didn't get it as bad the second time. Hmm. First off, that's 
Very good to hear <laughs> that hopefully yeah. means, you know, her body built up some pretty decent defenses that maybe weren't mm-hmm. perfect against the second version of the virus if it was, you know, a different variant, but that it was still pretty good. If we mm-hmm. were to see that a majority of people who are vaccinated and getting infected are getting infected with a variant and the proportion of those people who are getting this variant exceeds the proportion of people in the population who are getting this variant, like, you know, who are just unvaccinated. Yeah, I would maybe start to be a little concerned, but it's it's not the end of the world. I would also want to look at like, yeah. how severely are these people getting sick? Because um, you're right, it, it is kind of similar, you know, with both natural infection and a vaccine, the body sees this invader or uh, something that looks a lot like it, and it prepares a bunch of defenses and squirrels them away. Mm-hmm. And maybe it kind of learned the the wrong version of the virus, but it can still it can still tell a few things. Like I think about it as like a, a mugshot. You know, you take a mugshot of a criminal and he comes back, but he has grown a mustache and you feel <laughs> a little bit confused. But for the most part, it's still like, okay, I still kind of know what's going on and I'm still going to mm-hmm. take care of this. Um, so I'm still mostly okay with it. I'd, I'd know those eyes anywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even if you are wearing glasses with fake eyebrows and a fake mustache attached. <laughs> the virus is like, how did you know? <laughs> So it sounds like you're not extremely concerned by what you're seeing in terms of breakthrough cases at this point. And there's nothing that we've learned that should change the overall messaging that most people have gotten about vaccines being extremely effective and how life Mm -hmm. should basically be able to go on as pretty close to normal as long as you and the people you're spending your time around are vaccinated. Correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's probably worth it to point out that for months now, there have been all these headlines about like, oh, you know, these scientists tested this variant in the lab. And, you know, all of these antibodies were like, oh, crap, what's going on? I don't recognize this thing. And Mm -hmm. there were really terrifying numbers about like, 40 fold reduced efficacy in a vacuum. It, it is true that some of those antibodies were not doing as good a job against the virus, but those were single antibodies. The immune system is so complicated. It has so many different uh, arms and branches. Basically, the immune system is not putting all of its defensive eggs in one basket. And what's mm-hmm. been really encouraging is that when people really zoom out and don't just look at what's happening in a laboratory petri dish, they're seeing that Mm -hmm. the vaccines are still really effective against variants. It's another reason Mm -hmm. why, you know, we shouldn't obsess too much over only antibodies, even though they're great. They're not the whole picture. This is something we've touched on in the show, too. But it was never the intent of these vaccines to, you know, keep you from, you know, they don't coat you in uh, virus proof armor that make it so nothing can ever stick to you Mm -hmm. um, or that you might never Uh, test positive, but that you're meant to be mostly protected from from severe illness. And the hope would be that as the population drives down the prevalence of the virus overall, these numbers continue to decline and and not be significant. But, um, you know, are you optimistic that 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 will hold? I think the numbers are going to keep going down. But I think we're also going to be coexisting with this particular virus for quite some time. Mm. But 
you know, mm. that does not mean existing in this pandemic forever. The pandemic is eventually going to be declared over, but I don't want people to mix up the idea of the pandemic formally ending with, you know, eradication and we will never see, you know, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus again. I think with a lot of vaccines, we can get to a place where getting infected with this virus is generally speaking, not a huge deal. There will be some exceptions. And I think, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about people who are taking immunosuppressive drugs or otherwise mm -hmm. immunocompromised, but that sort of increases the importance of getting everyone else vaccinated because if a virus has nowhere to travel, it's not going to hit the vulnerable person. So on a population level, vaccination rates matter so, so much. I, I feel like that'll be crucial too as we head into the fall and winter if there yeah. are surges in areas. And you'll have these guidelines where people will be told, you know, like, remember we said before, if you were vaccinated, that you could, you know, hang out indoors without a mask. Now we're actually recommending that you don't. I'm not saying that'll definitely happen, but it might just based on the, the levels that are around you. So that could be confusing or seemingly contradictory. Jim, why did you mention heading into fall and winter? Because everybody's back inside again? Or... Um, yeah, to the degree to which we're seeing seasonality. I mean, I think okay. that is what we've seen yeah. mostly. And also just like the US has this everyone's kind of freshly vaccinated if there are waning effects after like nine months yeah then it'll be hitting us kind of like in the fall yeah um, i just thought it was more of your anti-winter um <laughs> tirade I hate winter yeah that was that was basically it. what about the new york yankees katie i kind of love this story actually because it's it's one of those like on the surface, it seems to tell one story, but if you go deeper. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the New York Yankees are a really interesting case study here. Um, a few weeks ago, we found out that nine fully vaccinated members of the New York Yankees had tested positive, oh. despite being fully vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which for the record is a great vaccine. But people freaked out and they were like, oh my God, these are all breakthroughs and the vaccines aren't working and Johnson & Johnson is terrible. But if you took a much closer look, seven of them never had symptoms, as far as I know. I think two of them had pretty mild cold-like symptoms and that's it they were also one of the the sports teams that kept like really really aggressively routinely testing their players like screening them even after they were fully vaccinated even though the cdc says hey if you're fully vaccinated maybe you don't need routine screening for a coronavirus infection maybe that's not a super useful use of resources and you know that the other downside to testing super aggressively after you've been vaccinated, your risk of, ha of having an infection is so low that it sort of, you know, counterintuitively increases the risk that you'll actually get a false positive and that test will return a mistake. There's this idea of pretest probability that's talked a lot about in medicine, which I can safely say as a non-medical professional, I guess, you know, you want to test wisely. You want to try and reserve your tests for people who have a high chance of that turning positive. The mistakes will occur less frequently when you wait for people to be exposed when they're not protected, or you wait for people to exhibit symptoms. And of course, we want to catch infections early. But in that case, it's totally possible that a couple of those could have been false positives, and we'll never know. We can't know for sure what would have happened if they had been unvaccinated and also exposed, but I'd be willing mm. to bet that on average, they would have fared worse. And it's so scary, I understand, to see headlines like seven or nine players 
get COVID-19 or, or even just saying test positive after being vaccinated really implies like the vaccine didn't work or wasn't effective. How could news media or communicators just do better about not implying that when, in fact, as you've described, it's actually a, a complex thing where people have just tested positive and it doesn't mean doesn't mean the vaccine didn't work. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And I think headline writing is a fraught <laughs> and dangerous <Yes>. art. <laughs> um, I know, yeah. But I think like ultimately it's fine to point those things out, but I think it's also good to normalize it. Like we're starting to see examples of new post-vaccination realities with COVID-19 or something. That's like super, that's a horrible headline. Don't ever do that. But <laughs> just, I mean, the idea that like, okay, we're going to see these infections. It's probably common to some degree and it's not a huge deal. And, you know, we should remember that like, this is not weird, actually. Maybe like, um, Yankee's not sick. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yankee, of you know. course, Yankees have viruses. <laughs> They do. Um, <laughs> they, I've been trying throughout like the whole pandemic, basically, to be vigilant about saying cases of COVID-19 and, and positive tests mm -hmm. or, you know, detected infections. But I think that I was like the only one who was trying to hang on to it. And in fact, it's become so common to call things COVID-19, even when they were asymptomatic yeah. positive tests, that it's I don't know if that battle is lost and the ship is sailed but no you, i'm you, with you yeah. and honestly this is why i get like really annoying still annoyingly pedantic when people mm -hmm. say covid19 tests because technically you're looking for the virus and if you were only testing for covid19 you wouldn't be testing for people who are asymptomatically infected yeah you covid19 oh. is in case uh yeah anyone has not listen to the past hundred and forty shows. We uh, <laughs> COVID nineteen is the is the disease, um, but you know, almost everyone <laughs> refers to it as oh, I had COVID, or I you know, we had this many cases of COVID nineteen when they actually just mean positive tests. I continue to think that we could do better. Right. Listen, she pitched you the ball, and you hit um, uh -oh. up into the sky over the fence. Home yep. run. That was a baseball oh, metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. Maybe it's mostly into cricket. <laughs> and, and then dunk. You hooked it right into the basket. Mm -hmm. Touchdown. Nice. Touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I hope that is a helpful update. Thank you, Katie, on Breakthrough Cases. And we will keep an eye on it. And I'm sure you will help raise alarms if and when people need to be concerned about that. Absolutely. So what else, uh, you know, I've been concerned about is my puppy, Moses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your giant puppy. Um, yeah, he, <laughs> he's a giant, huge, huge puppy. And I'm not the only one, it turns out, who has uh, gotten gotten a pet during during the pandemic who now is like extremely attached. He can't be not in the same room as me or my wife or he goes crazy and that's not just me no it's it's i've read it too and that's why we're going to talk to sarah so will you stay on the will you stay with us katie because we're going to talk to your other colleague which sarah zang because she wrote about this i would love to and if i 
cry about the puppies you just have to bear with me <laughs> okay if you if your weeping gets too loud we're going to mute you okay but um please don't welcome. minimize my pain man. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be uh, no please uh is sarah here sarah are you there hi yes i am here Thank you so hey, much Sarah. for joining us. Hi. Yeah, of course. Uh, and and you have a, a cat with you? Um, I have two cats, though I would say they're um, maybe not super relevant for this story because I actually believe <laughs> one of my cats cannot wait for me to go back to the office. And in <laughs> fact, he has been has this horrible habit of meowing at one of us, either me or my partner, nonstop from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day until he finally <laughs> decides to go to sleep. And a couple of days ago, my, my partner was out of town for a few days and he was totally fine. So I think he just wants the humans to leave. That is not my experience. So I have three cats because I'm crazy. Two of them are deeply attached to me. Like I'm I'm actively worried about what's going to happen when both my partner and I leave. Like they crawl in my lap, they will tap me on the shoulder and ask me to pick them up. It's very Wait, codependent. Don't you have to be like, how do they tap you on the shoulder? Are they so tall? <laughs> they are <laughs> probably giant cats. <laughs> and they walk uh, on their back legs. <laughs> I said cats, but I meant jaguars. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> no, that they are normal sized cats and they get up behind me on the couch. Or oh. if I am, you know, d deploying bad work habits and lying down while I work, they will come mm. up behind me and access my shoulder. Okay, what's up? <laughs> they just want oh, you to wow. have good posture. That's true. That's oh, they're saying stop slouching. Insight. <laughs> yeah. But did you, what well, did you learn, Katie? I mean, Jim, you probably have more questions because you're worried about Moses. Cats, to me, they're, they're fickle and sometimes want things that you don't always know. But, but puppies, they kind of just wear everything on their um, sleeves. Mm -hmm. and, and Moses, like, he follows me into the bathroom. He can't be alone at all. Wow. And I'm worried about not being with him all the time. And so, Sarah, you, you wrote a, a, an excellent story about this. And I'm wondering what I should do to wean my one-year-old puppy from constantly needing my presence? Well, you're not alone, literally. <laughs> um, <laughs> I talked to many dog owners who are in the same boat. And, and you know, one, one trainer I spoke to said that she had never in her life talked to someone before who had literally loved, never left their pet until this pandemic. And by never, she meant like, not even to go get the mail or to take out the trash or get groceries. Like literally the dog is with you at your side, wow. like looking at you all the time. So I think like, you know, for dogs who have separation anxiety, which is like kind of sometimes a technical term, sometimes used a little bit, thrown around a little bit more loosely. There are dogs with like real separation anxiety where you cannot even leave them for a second before they start howling. And I, I spoke to mm. one woman who had a dog who, you know, she took a walk and she could hear him barking and howling from a block away and then yep. the, is that what Moses that is, does that's us. oh no oh Moses yeah so what she <laughs> had to do literally was go through this training where um first she wouldn't even leave him she would just kind of like do the things that you would do before you went out the door so she like pick up her keys and then put them down and put on her coat and put them down and because this is COVID she'd put on her mask and take it down until he got used to that and like stopped reacting oh. to that yeah. And then it was like literally like leave for a few seconds. 
me for a minute, a few seconds, a minute. Mm -hmm. And she said like literally five minutes was like, we're having a party here. So she is like kind of going through this period where she is working. Well, she lives in Oregon. So she's working in her garage in the cold for like minutes or hours at a time while her Mm -hmm. dog is acclimating to this new work apart reality. Gotcha. So it's you're you're getting the dog used to sort of training it in small increments so they're not traumatic. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing okay. that I thought was really interesting is that rather than going like always going up, you know, because like apparently dogs are smart enough to realize that you're leaving them for longer and longer periods of time and they start dreading that it's going to get even longer and longer, that what you actually uh, do is do longer and then shorter and then longer and then shorter <laughs> so that they can't feel like they can predict what you're about to do. Yeah. That that makes total sense. That's really helpful. Could you um, do it, Jim, that worried. like you go out and then Sarah goes out another day, you know, like, so there's just, you know, kind of like what Katie said, like you get used to one person yeah. being there and then no people yeah. being there. I don't know. I'm hope I've been hoping he just as he gets older realizes that I'm pretty boring and gets tired of me. But it's not happening. He just becomes so, a surly teen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does the same thing work for cats? Um, you know, that's actually a great question. I didn't even think to ask about cats just because, <laughs> as I said, my cat has been Because you're has in an abusive relationship with your two cats. As every cat owner is in some way with their cats. Absolutely. <laughs> um, this is discriminatory and I hate it. <laughs> that's Katie's cat on the mic. Um, so is there any other advice? like that you can you know that you learned from from speaking to trainers and i don't like doggy daycare and stuff they must be gearing up for a bonanza yeah yeah no when when woman i spoke to she was like like almost kind of interviewing her dog at multiple doggy daycares because she wanted to Mm -hmm. make sure that she wasn't like caught in a lurch and they were all too you know like all too full for her um you know actually the really interesting thing i my realization from talking to lots of trainers and dog owners is that i was originally really focused on what it's going to be like for the puppies and like how they're going to have to adjust to being alone but actually it's the humans who also have to get used to being away from their dogs um so many people i talked to are like man i'm just like used to having my dog all the time i'm always looking behind me to look at my dog or petting my dog during a call and like Mm -hmm. actually we all have to get used to being alone as well wow this is not to even mention new parents jim what uh, are you going to do without your your shadow oh i'm going to be fine i mean he's (laughs) he's like you know he's trouble (laughs) it sounds like you're minimizing it so that you don't have to go through the pain but i think you're gonna be (laughs) a bit weepy no we're actually getting another puppy which is silly this is like a controversial strategy (laughs) (laughs) wait is it specifically to keep moses company while you're away yeah it's gonna be literally his little sibling from another round of pups so we'll see i don't know Maybe we're just making everything way worse. Because you're going to have like two lonely puppies now? (laughs) No, Moses can then take care of this little one who's going to be called Raisin. And uh, (laughs) he'll be like, he'll feel purpose. Classic food combo Moses and Raisin. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Dad, what's for dessert? (laughs) Jim, congratulations. I did not know that was your plan. And you're also like 
jumping this on Sarah too. Like she has to tell you if it's a good idea or not because she's oh, reported sorry. on this. Sarah, over to uh, you. No, I, I don't have an expert on opinion on this because it really depends <laughs> on the dog themselves. So, you know, it sounds like maybe Moses is ready to handle this responsibility of being big brother. I would say that this is the logic that we followed when we got our second cat and it absolutely backfired. <laughs> so proceed cautiously. Oh, no. Okay. But they're All cats, right. not dogs. So Moses, I'm sure yeah. Moses will be better. Well, um, this is really helpful, Sarah. Thank you for the brief uh, appearance. Yeah, and thanks for writing out that because it just affects people's home lives so much when their pet is sad or they're worried about their pet. I know that. So it's really helpful. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Katie. Look forward to continuing to read your work on both of these subjects. Definitely. Thanks. And thanks for um, speaking up for cats, Katie. <laughs> Anytime you need a cat advocate, I'm here. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 Thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks, Sarah. Bye, bye. Oh, Jim, that was so great to talk to both of your colleagues. They're so wonderful. And it definitely makes me sad that this is the penultimate episode of Social Distance. Yeah. You just dropped some big news there. Maze. Yeah. Well, you dropped the news about getting a new puppy, but that's not <laughs> why <laughs> that's not why the podcast is is ending. Yeah. I mean, things have gotten so much better here in the mm -hmm. US that people don't have the same questions, the same number of questions, the same intensity of questions mm -hmm. um as before, and we've done yeah, well over 100 episodes of what started off as an emergency phone call between me and Catherine and mm -hmm. now we still are here so i think we've agreed that we should take some time to to figure out next steps about how we can be how we can be useful going forward which we alluded to before and we are going to, to do that and we are going to have one more episode of social distance next week yes for sure so i know the listeners of this show are so wonderful and clever um, and loyal too. So if there's anything you want to say, any questions you have for Jim, um, we have another show next week. So please give us a call or shoot us an email. You can call us 202-642-6487 or socialdistance at theatlantic.com. And Social Distance is produced by AC Valdez with help from Kevin Townsend. And finally, as always, if you like this show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to get it is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. So next week, we'll have some special guests and try to wrap up everything that we can. That sounds good. That sounds great, Jim. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, bye-bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.